Happy Easter, everyone. Today at churches around the world, pastors are dressed in their Sunday best to preach the beautiful message of our risen Jesus to their congregation. But here at Grace Chapel, our pastor is dressed in something a little different. What you're about to experience is the creative telling of the story of Matthew, one of Jesus's 12 disciples and the author of one of the four gospels. We chose Matthew because he reminds us of ourselves, someone looking for life beyond what we've known, looking for hope that's stronger than our fears. And to craft this Easter message, we relied on historical documents, including scriptures and our own imaginations. We want to understand Matthew better, but more importantly, we want to understand his rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. We're so glad you're with us this morning. So go ahead and silence your phone, sit back, and experience Easter through the eyes of a first century man named Matthew. Of all the things I ever thought I'd be in life, a writer was never on the list. I'm more of a numbers guy. You know, facts and figures, black and white, bottom line. I like things that add up. For years, I had a shelf full of scrolls here in my office, very neatly arranged, everything in its place. I always bought the same parchment, always used the same color ink. I was predictable. I had to be, because life had been anything but. I was an only child, born into a simple Jewish family in the fishing village of Capernaum. My father was not a fisherman. He, he ran a local business. He taught me to read and do calculations. There was a synagogue in our town, a beautiful one. And I remember going often with my parents, even though as an adult, I didn't set foot inside for years. I was hardly more than a boy when they died. Sickness swept through our town, took many lives, a fever. My father went first, then my mother. She cared for him all while he was ill and kept me safely out of his room. They're buried in a tomb belonging to our family in the rocks on the outskirts of town. He is gathered to his fathers, the rabbi said. She rests in the peace of her people. No. Something inside me said, no. They're just gone. And who could talk about peace in a place like this? And when they rolled that stone into place, I couldn't breathe. I thought I would never be able to walk away from that grave. I stayed long into, after the sun was down, I was shivering and cold. I began the prayers a good Jew prays at a tomb, but then I stopped. And to God, whoever he was, I said something a little less filtered. I will not forget this. And I grew a shell that day. 
a convincing one, I don't know, but I built it up in the years that followed. I sold the family home and bought another one. I, I took a job, one my parents would not have approved of. I walked into the office of the local Roman consul and asked for a position as a tax collector. I showed them I had the relevant skills, I paid a fee, and when I walked out with my papers in hand and my newfound status, I had burned the bridge to the way I'd been raised. You see, to be a Jew and work for the Romans, our enemies and occupiers with their many gods and their hedonistic ways, you have to understand, it was like climbing on a box in the town square and renouncing my heritage. It was like renouncing your grandmother. My parents would have been ashamed, but I was angry. I was angry at my community. I was angry at my religion, which seemed to have failed me. I was angry at them for being God. And as for God, if he existed at all, I wanted nothing to do with him. It was time to, to watch out for myself, to build my own life. If I, could, if I could earn enough, if I could build enough, if I could protect enough, I would be safe. Security, that's what I was looking for. With my wealth, with my, with my work, my home, with its high walls and its soft rugs, I lived and ate my meals and slept safely and alone. Because it turns out that people don't really like tax collectors. <laughs> Something to do with taking their hard-earned money. I was a customs official. I could stop anyone who passed by and demand to see what was in their cart or their sack and tax them on it. I owed a certain amount of revenue to my Roman bosses, but, but they understood that if I happened to collect a little additional cash, they would look the other way. It was the silver lining to fleecing my own people. I started out honest. I really did. But it didn't take long for the money to, to get a grip on me. And soon I was taking way more than was due from the hard-working tradespeople and merchants who were my neighbors. So they despised me for it naturally, but what could they do? I had the power of Rome behind me. So I put my head down. I worked hard. I took all the right steps. I got all the right people close to me. And by the time I reached midlife, I was pretty much where I wanted to be. The only problem was... I didn't really feel safe or satisfied. I felt anxious and uneasy and restless. Sometimes I worry that no matter what else I do in life, I'll always be known as Matthew the tax collector. That would be fair. It's what I was. But not anymore. So what will it be? Could it be Matthew the writer? I'm getting ahead of myself. It's ironic, really, what happened next because God was the last person I would have turned to. I'd heard of this rabbi named Jesus. He was a nobody, really. Hadn't studied under anybody famous. He came from this town, Nazareth. 
that's only known for being a place you're glad you're not from. <laughs> Had no wife, no children, like me, I guess. But he set himself up in Capernaum. And right from the beginning, his name began to spread fast. There were rumors that he had healed a local woman, mother-in-law of a popular fisherman. They said he was ruffling the feathers of the religious elite. Didn't mean much to me. I hadn't been to the synagogue in a long time. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have let me in. And God and me, what did we have to say to each other? But I was in a stuck place in my life. I had everything I had worked for, but it didn't feel like enough. One day I was sitting at my booth along a busy road in Galilee, and I kept seeing groups of people go by, with nothing taxable, by the way. <laughs> All of them headed in the same direction. I heard them saying that this rabbi Jesus was nearby and that he was teaching. And on a whim, I decided to go and listen. I wouldn't have said I was seeking anything, that I had any kind of spiritual motivation. Absolutely not. Like you might not be today. But have you ever come home at the end of the day to a house full of things and found it feeling cold and empty? Have you ever woken in the middle of the night unsettled and not sure why? Ever wondered where all this is going anyway? Then you're like I was that day when I settled down on a patch of warm grass and listened to Jesus teach. His followers, his students were up close, right at his feet. Regular guys seemed to be and even a few women. And the crowd spilled over every direction down the hillside. And a gentle breeze off the lake seemed to almost carry his words along. As sermons go, it was a little unconventional. Blessed are the poor, he said. Blessed are those who mourn. There's nothing blessed about mourning, I wanted to tell him. He called out hypocrites. People who give away money only to improve their reputation. People who pray beautiful prayers in public and do awful things in private. And I found myself nodding. It was refreshing to hear a rabbi talk like this. The kind of religion he was against is the kind of religion I was against. Love your enemies, he said. If you love only those who are kind to you, what good is that? Even the tax collectors do that. All right. Could I not go anywhere without being mocked for my profession? And why did it still sting? But then he said the thing that stuck. Don't bother to collect treasures on earth, he said. Where things rust and decay and be taken away from you. Instead, gather treasures in heaven where, where nothing will rust or decay or be taken away. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will end up. 
where nothing will rust or decay or be taken away? Where was such a place? Treasures in heaven, what were those? Money had, I had a lot of treasures. Money had bought me many treasures. But I, I was still afraid, afraid of losing them, afraid of death, afraid really of, of life. And all that day, his words nagged at me. Where was my heart? Would my treasures add up to a worthwhile life? It was unsettling. But within a couple of days, I had pushed it all aside and gotten back to business as usual. And it was several weeks before I saw Jesus again. I was sitting at my booth, lost in thought, staring at nothing, which was a pretty good metaphor for my life at the time. Someone cleared his throat, and I looked up, and Jesus was standing there, alone, arms folded, studying me. I had the impression he might have been standing there a long time, waiting for me to notice. I had the impression he might have been there my entire life, waiting for me to notice. He looked straight at me. And without any introductions, he said, follow me. <laughs> was, maybe he was at the wrong booth. And why would any rabbi call someone like me? But in that instant, after all those months of indecision, something was clear. I did not want to sit in that booth, in that life, for one more day. I didn't know a way out, but maybe he did. So I stood up, nodded, and followed him away from that desk and into the afternoon light. I had no idea what follow me was supposed to mean. So I grabbed him by the arm and said, Rabbi, Come to my house tonight for dinner. I have some friends I want you to meet. And you can bring anyone you'd like. He looked at me and, and smiled as if to say, let's do it. So, so I ran off with a new sense of purpose, banging on the doors of the few friends I had, tax collectors mostly, pretty rough and tumble crowd. Said, Come to my house tonight for dinner. It'll be a feast. Oh, and by the way, I said, I invited the rabbi, Jesus. Well, I got some strange looks at that one, but hey, a feast is a feast. And so that night they came, my handful of friends, and, and soon the rabbi and, and a handful of his followers. Yeah, it was a pretty awkward mix of people at first. But Jesus, Jesus is the most beautiful person you've ever met. He's a natural with anyone, anywhere. He sat right down, picked up, picked up a cup, and just started asking questions, started telling stories. And soon my dining room was filled with the sound of animated conversation, of stories and debate, of laughter, of life. It was just the beginning 
But I will never forget that night. Jesus had come to me. At the end of the evening, I walked my guest to the door, and that's when I discovered we had an audience. Some officials had come from the temple, and they were watching us, glaring at us, actually, with judgment and indignation. Jesus greeted them as he passed by, his followers trailing behind. One of the Pharisees called out after them, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And my good mood evaporated. I felt that old familiar shame again. But Jesus shouted back over his shoulder, Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I have come to call sinners. Sinners, the sick, the broken, the needy. Those were the people who were drawn to Jesus. The only people who couldn't tolerate him really were people who couldn't admit their need. Couldn't admit they've ever done anything wrong. I had never met anyone like this man. And so a couple of days later, when he and his followers packed up and moved on from Capernaum, I went too. And when he named 12 to be his closest companions, when he gave them authority to do ridiculous things, healings and cleansings and things that change people's lives, I was one of them. Unlikely? Oh, yeah. No one was less likely than me to be following Jesus. And it actually took a while for me to fit in with that crew. It took a while for us to know and trust each other. But there was no turning back. We all agreed on that. What Jesus was about was not religion. It was, it was life, life beyond wealth and status, and beyond anything we'd ever known. And we wanted it. I wanted it. The funny thing is, my life before Jesus had been a lot safer. I was financially secure. I had steady work. I had friends. I had a comfortable home to sleep in at night. But somehow, being with Jesus, as unpredictable as those days were, gave me this sense of security and, and, and freedom. I had less, but I lived more. I saw more. I felt more. And I began to open up parts of myself that had been locked up for a long time. One night we were sitting around the fire just telling stories and someone called out to me, so Matthew, what's your story? Where are your parents? Suddenly I felt everyone looking at me, including Jesus. They're gone, I said. It, it happened a long time ago. But they pressed and so... I told the story quickly. I, I didn't want to make my life sound any easier or harder than the next guy. It was quiet when I was done. Jesus spoke next, and when he did, he sounded angry. Not at me, but angry at what had happened to me. Angry at the kind of world where people are taken away from us. 
angry at the pain and loss and heartache that we try to heal but just can't. He was angry at death. What did God and I have to say to each other? Turned out quite a bit. Not too long after that, just a few weeks ago actually, after a time of prayer, Jesus announced that we were going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, some of the guys were excited. I was nervous. I mean, Jerusalem is beautiful, glamorous even. It's a place to be seen and to see and to spend money and a place to worship. But it's also a place where politics is always at play, even in religious circles, and it can get ugly fast. Jesus himself seemed a bit grim. His words got darker and more ominous. One day he pulled us aside, the 12 of us, off to the side of the road. And with the sun high overhead and the holy city in front of us, he said, look, we are almost to Jerusalem. And so I tell you, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. No one knew what to say, except Peter, who pretty much always had something to say. <laughs> uh, Master, Peter said, maybe let's not go? <laughs> A knot had settled into my stomach and wouldn't go away. I didn't like Jesus talking about death. It brought back too many memories. All my life I had kept people at a distance for this very reason so no one else would be taken from me. Jesus was so full of life. He was vibrant and healthy and, and I needed him. I trusted him not to leave us. But he would not be deterred from going to Jerusalem. And so soon we were on the road again and then carried along by this growing crowd of people. By the time he got to the gates of Jerusalem, he was riding the bank of a, back of a donkey. And, and Jewish peasants and children were running around before him and behind him, waving branches in the air and calling out, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Every eye was on him. That week he taught us relentlessly. One parable after another, a prophecy, a scripture, like he was trying to prepare us for something, like he was trying to cram everything in. But it was, it was overwhelming. We were exhausted. We were confused. And, and things were getting tense. When we finally sat down for that Passover meal, Jesus and Judas exchanged words. And Judas suddenly walked out. It was like a bad family dinner. What was happening? That night he took us to the Mount of Olives to a garden where he liked to go and pray. Stay awake with me, he said. Let's pray a while. It was late, it was dark, we were tired, and, and we all fell asleep. And when we woke up, Judas was back, but he wasn't alone. He had brought men with him, men who would do awful things. 
And everything Jesus predicted about his death was about to come to pass. You've probably heard that that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. How could he have done it? I spent most of my life chasing money. And just about the time you realize it can't give you what you are asking for, it's too late. It is astonishing what people will do for money. I tried to be brave that night. I stuck with the crowd into Pilate's courtyard for the trial. I followed the procession up and out to the awful hill. Follow me, Jesus had said, and I tried. But when they started nailing him to that cross, that panic came rushing back. I I couldn't breathe. I had to get out of there, and so I ran. Where your treasure is, you said, that can't be taken from you. This was the thing that was not supposed to be taken, Jesus. You were the one who was supposed to save us. Not, not go and leave us. Not go and leave me like everyone else has. It was a nightmare. All the worst moments of my life come back to haunt me. All that night, the next day, the next night, we, we hid out in that room. We'd had dinner and we kept the doors bolted. We jumped at every voice in the street below. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I felt as though death was coming for all of us. But on the third day, something happened. Some of the women went out to the tomb. I wasn't about to go. There would be no peace for me in a place like that. People are different, lives are different, but graves, graves are all the same. Or so I thought. Later that day, the women came back all worked up. When they got there, they said the stone had been rolled away, just pushed aside as if it was nothing. The tomb was empty, they said. There was an angel, they said. And he told them, he is not here. He is risen. As he said, go, tell his disciples he will meet them in Galilee. Risen? What was that supposed to mean? Who had ever risen from death? But then we remembered his words. By the side of the road there on the way into Jerusalem, Everything Jesus predicted about his death had come to pass. What about this? Peter and John ran out to the tomb to see for themselves. I wasn't about to go. An empty tomb sounded worse than an occupied one to me. At least you know where the bodies are. (laughs) Sure enough, they came back. The tomb was empty, but there was no sign of anyone anywhere. He was gone. So where did he go? What happened? We, we argued about it all afternoon. We were still arguing about it that night when suddenly there he was. Jesus standing right in the middle of the room as if he'd been there all along. As if, like that day by my booth, he had been waiting for us to notice. Peace 
be with you, he said. Peace at a time like this. But peace is exactly what I felt. Even with all that was happening, I had this sense of calm, this assurance, this hopefulness that things would be all right, not in a way I planned, not in any way that made sense at the moment, but a way that was going to be good. Happened again, a week later, same night, in the same room. Jesus standing in the midst of us. He showed us his, his hands on his side, even to Thomas, who was having such a hard time. And that night, Thomas and all of us began to believe that Jesus had died as he said and that Jesus had risen as he said. And if it was true, if he had faced death and won, well, that changes the meaning of death. It changes the meaning of life. So here I am, back in Galilee, back in Capernaum, with a blank page in front of me and, and a new color ink and a story to tell. A story way better than Matthew the tax collector. Because if a stone is nothing, if death doesn't win, then I am free to really live. And so are you.